This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash into the portal. February 18th, 1978. It was a brisk but clear winter day on the shores of Lake Michigan. As a young man, a college student from the town of Holland, ventured out for an afternoon of cross-country skiing along the frozen shores. It was on afternoons such as this, with the sun shining and the view around the water clear as day, that it was easy to forget some of the strange things that have happened at Lake Michigan. Undeterred, the young man continued his afternoon trek, gliding along the snow, when something out on the ice caught his attention. He stopped, staring for a moment before he began to feel a strange sensation come over him, when all of a sudden, everything went black. For thousands of years, the waters of Lake Michigan have been associated with paranormal phenomena. The dangers of deep water and extreme weather being well known, but there was something more, a type of energy that was much more difficult to explain. But one thing is for certain, it's a place that could take you. However, the cases around the lake never gained much attention, with the narrative of disappearances being dominated by the headlines over decades, focusing on the infamous area of the Bermuda Triangle. It was often forgotten that there are across the globe other places where things simply disappear. Locations where the concentration of strange phenomena far exceeds what might be considered normal. What we are left with is an unexplainable series of strange happenings spread across an area that has now become known as the Lake Michigan Triangle. A place where planes, ships, and individual people inexplicably vanish. Welcome back into the portal, everyone, as we attempt to unravel the mysteries of this area and search for the truth behind one of the lake's most bizarre vanishings, the disappearance of Stephen Kubaki. Welcome back into the portal. Your gateway to the bazaar. Yeah, welcome back, everyone. Mm -hmm. Excited to be here on the mic with you guys today. And uh, we really hope that you all enjoyed that last Film Friday, the rejuvenation (laughs) of Film Friday. (laughs) Rejuvenation. Yeah, the revival (laughs) virus, which is kind of an ironic, calling it a revival, and then the title was virus. Yeah. But Mm. yeah, awesome 90s movie. So we hope you guys really enjoyed that. And we've got another one in the works. So Film Friday is definitely back. We've got a list of some pretty dope movies that people mm-hmm. have suggested. And, thanks to Tubi. Uh, <laughs> thanks to Tubi. Yeah. So a lot of them are going to be accessible for you guys. We won't make you rent anything if you're wanting mm-hmm. to follow along. So exactly. stay tuned for that. I believe the next one is going to be 
future world as we teased on the last episode. So stay tuned for more Film Friday. But today we are not talking about films. We are talking about some other things. Mm -hmm. Disappearances, among other strange topics for the day. So I just want to jump right into this. Let's do it. All right. So once again, we're heading back to the area of the Great Lakes, where we, several years ago, I think it was 2018, we covered the Great Lakes Triangle and that awesome book by, I believe it was Richard Gourlay. Was that the name? Yeah. Was it Richard? Gourlay was was the last name for sure. it was Jay Gourlay. Was it Jay Gourlay? Anyway. (laughs) We will have to uh, re-reference that. And it was sent to us, actually, by a listener who found it at, like, a garage sale. Do you remember that? Amazing. So that's got to be one of the coolest paranormal books we have on the bookshelf right Mm. now. But, yes, we are venturing back to the Great Lakes, except sort of like a, a, what would you call it, a (laughs) sub-sub-appellation? That's what I want my brain goes to. A a sub-triangle within the larger Great Lakes triangle. Because today we are (laughs) focusing specifically on... Lake Michigan. Exactly. Mm -hmm. We're zeroing in here. So this is a region that we've discussed multiple different times for various different reasons, whether it be creature-based, like the Wendigo on the East Coast, as well as uh, various different disappearances with the Great Lakes Triangle. And that's where we're going to start today, on the shores of Lake Michigan, where something absolutely bizarre happened and definitely kicked off the research for this episode. So we're starting things off in February of 1978. So here's the story, the breakdown of the disappearance of Stephen Kubaki. So in February of 1978, we're located in Holland, Michigan. A student named Stephen Kubaki, who was 23 years old, studying at Hope College, which was a Christian post-secondary institution. Now, Kubaki was known to be an enthusiastic athlete. He was an avid outdoorsman, and he had previously done many different sort of excursions that were noteworthy, rock climbing expeditions, while he was studying abroad in Europe, most noteworthy but also in the U.S. as well. And he'd been a cross-country skier for years and years. And he had been out in this general area on Lake Michigan many times before. He was studying German history, among other things, and was set to graduate later that spring. So let's get to the day in question. It was the afternoon of February 18th when Stephen set out for a day of cross-country skiing along the shores of Lake Michigan, relatively close to the town of Holland. This was a common, especially this time of year where winter activity was so commonplace, and Stephen had set out in the late morning for what should have been a very easy, leisurely day of cross-country skiing. The weather was fair, the skies were clear, and there was nothing to indicate that this would be a dangerous day of skiing near the lake. On the east coast of Canada and the U.S. around the Great Lakes, the temperatures in February are typically on the colder side of things, around minus 7 degrees Celsius, something close enough to this, meaning the conditions should be perfect for cross-country skiing. So before leaving, Stephen told his friends about his plans for the day, roughly where he was heading along the lake where he had been before, and that he would be back later that evening. However, as the hours passed and the light of day turned to the dim February glow, Stephen still had not returned. As more time passed, his friends began to worry even more and, if not outright panic. They ended up contacting the local Holland Police Department, and within hours, Michigan Search and Rescue were out looking for Kubaki along Lake Michigan. But out of these reports, it was followed up shortly after by the police themselves out on the lake, not just Search and Rescue, who are now all searching for Kubaki, friends, police, and Search and Rescue teams. But what they found was downright bizarre. On the shores of the lake, they found Stephen's cross-country skis and his backpack just lying there. Oddly, they had been taken off either by himself or somehow removed. But then even stranger, there was a series of footprints that were discovered close by, 
that were leading directly out onto the ice, about 200-yard trail of footprints in the snow that matched Stephen's foot size and obviously were located right next to his backpack and skis. With little else they could do, the investigators followed these tracks out onto the ice. They were solid, clear footprints that had to have come from Stephen Kubaki. But several meters out onto the ice, the footprints just stopped, as if Stephen had vanished into thin air. So with little else to go on as far as evidence, and the tracks having ended so abruptly, this led investigators to conclude that Stephen must have fallen through the ice to his death, either by drowning or by hypothermia and then drowning. Although they would continue to search for nearly a week after this, following the 18th, this was the general consensus, that he had just fallen through the ice. Seems a little bit strange. So what do you think so far? That's very um, straightforward, you know, you just have a random end of trail of footprints, but no evidence to suggest that he had fallen through the ice. That doesn't add up to me. No, no cracks in the ice, no, no, I mean, disturbance in the the snow, no... uh, No indication that he fell through the ice, per se. Yeah, so, okay. So let's do a quick pause recap here. Mm -hmm. So we have Stephen Kubacki, a 23-year-old. So this is a young man in the prime of his life. He's studying German, among other things. I think philosophy was one of his big focuses as well. Mm -hmm. Even though his, uh, what was it, his his principal, or whoever you want to call it, has said that he was very disfocused. It seems like a guy, though, that is just kind of a loner to me like I don't really know anyone that I know that would just go out by themselves for cross-country skiing I mean lots of people go out by themselves cross-country skiing noteworthy why I can say my uncle Doug Doug goes cross-country skiing by himself okay so Uh, we've got a Doug on our hands yeah so any people from Rossland (laughs) strange budgies from Rossland they'll go cross-country skiing by themselves I'm just a yuppie here from West Kelowna Mm, but anyways mm. so yeah so we have conditions that should be perfect minus seven degrees celsius should be more than enough to keep the ice frozen so so it's just Occam's razor, I guess, these investigators concluding what they inevitably have to conclude if yeah. there's no other evidence to suggest otherwise. But we do have some discrepancies, perhaps, here. There were some other sources. I believe it was a local newspaper that reported the disappearance the following day. They stated that a group traveling by snowmobile discovered his abandoned skis and pack, and then this was in combination with his friends reporting him missing to lead to this more pronounced search. Right. So it's, it's, it's a little bit nebulous as far as, like, who was involved in the initial search, how it really got kicked off, but inevitably this guy was missing and it was good that he actually did alert people I guess that he was going out because there's the classic what was that the that movie where he had to chop off his oh, arm 127 hours <laughs> didn't yeah. tell anyone where he was going <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah so yeah. we don't have any evidence like that it's not like he chopped off a limb to get away from something but uh no or any sort of like you know the other thought I had was that perhaps this, and this is what I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit That's here, okay. but just, the whole yeah. idea that the tracks could have ended because a wind could have blown up on the lake and it could have actually swept the snow and created the illusion that the footprints ended. Right. But that's so just abruptly. me kind of thinking. It's possible. It's possible. It is. It is. Regardless, obviously the police and search and rescue, they were puzzled, but hopeful that they would find some more evidence. So they did continue the search for another full week. Right. But they didn't turn up anything else. No, Stephen... No evidence to suggest that anything had happened to him. Yeah. Eaten by wolves? I don't know. No, yeah, no nothing no, like that. No remnants of clothing, no blood traces. Yeah, no, nothing like that. Exactly. So they did call off the search eventually and declared Stephen likely dead by drowning. Yeah. They couldn't officially declare him dead without a body. So they had to just, he was mm-hmm. officially missing. 
you know, it hadn't been time, not enough time had been, you know, had passed to declare him dead in absentia or anything like that, right? yeah. or like, or whatever. Mm-hmm. So yeah, just, just likely dead. But the the one weird thing about this is obviously the fact that he seemingly took off his skis, his backpack, and walked willfully onto the ice. Mm-hmm. Why? What would have drawn him out there? Mm-hmm. Was there something going on, something of interest, or something else? Exactly. That's what... And I wish we had more uh, statements from the initial search and rescue that could kind of maybe speak to the atmospheric conditions, or even if they could... Like, what if there was a mirage or something? You know what Ooh. I mean? Like, I actually don't know if that sort of phenomenon can happen in the wintertime. Like, obviously, you can have mirages with high heat. Right. And, uh, Some sort of a mirage caused by a combination of different... Yeah, you're right. I yeah, could that happen in the winter? That's interesting. But mm-hmm. you're right, yeah, to have more statements from the initial search and rescue, like even if, even just a personal statement as as far as, to, like, to speak to the the vibe yeah. in the area. Like, That's was, what I mean, yeah. yeah, like, mm-hmm. was there this sense that something more was afoot rather than just a mm-hmm. just an, un, an unlucky disappearance or a drowning in the lake? But of course, we don't get any of that. All right, so let's recap some of the issues we're actually having already here with yeah. the... Um, the logical explanation, if we want to call it that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so some problems. Okay, so the investigators, they did find his prints and gear relatively quickly, and right. they weren't covered by snow, so that maybe that negates my initial sort of like, oh, what if the wind blew up and you know what I mean? That it would have to explain. be super localized, right? So it's mm-hmm. like what you're describing would be a gust yeah. of wind out on the lake where the tracks would have come roughly to an mm-hmm. end and then covered up the disturbance that would have maybe give more clues as to what actually happened, mm-hmm. not just footprints. Exactly. Right. So it could have, he could have continued out onto the water for much further of a distance, potentially. Yes. But that's very much a reach. Not really, but like, you know, a little bit of a There's reach. no way to say. There's <laughs> exactly. no way to say. Exactly. Exactly. The other problem we were having here is obviously no evidence of a break in the ice that would have resulted in Stephen's death. Right. And the other issue here, why would he have removed his gear? It just doesn't really make a lot of sense in that regard, especially his skis. Like if you're going out onto the lake, like that's your quickest form of transportation. Why would you take it off? And also more surface area, more you're surface, less yeah. likely to break through the ice. Exactly. He would have known that mm-hmm. if he was actually concerned about that. Yeah. But minus seven, it's February, here. the ice wouldn't have been ready mm-hmm. to crack through. We literally drove through, just as a little anic- personal anecdote here, you and I were driving through the South Okanagan not too long ago, just a few mm-hmm. months ago. So this is heading into spring. This is past February. And people are still out there ice fishing. Mm-hmm. And we were, like, looking at it being like, that looks kind of sketchy. It does. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And, like, this is in British Columbia, not Michigan, in <laughs> yeah. February. It's definitely warmer here. Yeah. So, anyway. And not the whole lake was frozen either. Exactly. That was freaky, man. I would not be doing that. So but anyways, just, that's just me. I, yeah, so... So we have all of these questions, though. And the other one, too, that we should probably mention is why would the investigators be so willing to follow these tracks onto the ice if it was risky? You know what I mean? They clearly had no issue. Right. So. Very true. Oh, yes. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They just, they waltzed out there. Yeah. Hmm. So, Very anyways. strange. Yeah. We got a lot of questions here. <laughs> yeah. Lots of questions. And sort of regardless of these questions, the case was, like you already said, essentially closed. It was chalked up to be yet another winter accident in the area of Lake Michigan, which obviously is not entirely uncommon. Obviously, people do go missing. They do fall through the ice occasionally. Mm-hmm. And especially within the proximity of, of the Lake Michigan Triangle, which will become a major focus of today's episode, which is, of course, a smaller component of the larger Great Lakes Triangle, where literally, I mean, I'm saying dozens, but actually over the, over the centuries and with undocumented cases, cases possibly of like indigenous groups mm-hmm. on the lake, there's got to be thousands of disappearances mm-hmm, between yeah. planes, ships, humans just outright vanishing on Lake Michigan. 
weird little police side note that I really wanted to add in here because it was just so dark and mm-hmm. I didn't expect this to pop up in the research at all. Mm-hmm. The police kind of hitting a dead end with this, not finding any other evidence other than this, the fact that he weirdly took off his backpack and skis. Yeah. It was interesting to find out that there was actually some suggestions from detectives who investigated this di- disappearance that they themselves didn't really buy into the drowning theory. Yes, it was Occam's razor, but there wasn't really enough evidence for some of these detectives to just buy that outright. So what they did was looked into Stephen's dental records. They actually sent them to Chicago to see if Stephen Kubaki had potentially run away or snuck out of Michigan and had unknowingly ended up as one of the victims of John Wayne Gacy, the serial killer. He was the right age. He was the right... Uh, he was the right, he fit the bill. He fit the bill potentially as someone who could have been one of those victims and it just happened to be at the time. So they had to look into it. Timing's right. And his pretty little face, you look at pictures of him and it's just like, oh, he's got that little like baby face, little round face. Gruesome, gruesome stuff. He could have ended up as someone's uh, lampshade. Yikes. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, that was an interesting angle that the cops actually looked into. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, that is uh, actually interesting. That's a divergence from the the triangle. Yeah. And that actually is kind of helpful because it does kind of paint a picture of all of these different potential possibilities, right? Like, they're looking into everything. They're taking this quite seriously, it seems. Yeah. But anyways, yeah, that's that's dark, man. And I know we're not a true crime podcast, but I feel like everyone listening is going to definitely recognize that name. Of Even course. if you're not familiar with exactly what he did, you can mad-lib the rest for yourselves. Mm-hmm. But aside from this, Holland, Michigan, where Stephen actually departed from that day, is indeed near the waterline of the triangle, mm-hmm. where the, the Great Lakes Triangle and the smaller Michigan Triangle is actually designated over the water itself. It runs right along the shoreline where Holland is just off to the side of. So he is, or was, technically within this geographic territory that is responsible or associated with so many anomalies, disappearances, and just high strangeness in general. So... What the hell is going on here? Hmm. Could Stephen have cracked through the ice and drowned just completely out of character for someone who is an experienced cross-country skier? Or could Stephen have faked his disappearance and run off somewhere? If so, why would he have done this? And how could he possibly have covered up all the rest of his tracks heading away from the scene and, you know, from his discovered gear laying in the snow? Hmm. Very, very strange. Thinking even more towards, like, the world of the paranormal... Could Stephen have been taken away, taken away by unknown forces of some kind? Whether this is outright abduction or something different, Stephen perhaps stepping into some kind of a kind of a time vortex, or possibly being I'm, I'm re- re- very reminiscent of some of the things experienced by the the Nids team on Skinwalker Ranch, mm-hmm. possibly. Yeah, Stargate opened up, man. S- Stephen just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. I mean, what do you think of that possibility? I find that fascinating. And uh, there's that, there's the paranormal, there's the more mundane theories, there's also perhaps potentially a conspiracy angle you can talk about too. We'll get into that Mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah, there's a lot of different um, avenues to explore with this case. Both paranormal and uh, conspiracy angle, I feel like were were camps that his parents and brother, his family, were both kind of leaning towards because they did not buy the drowning theory at all. Mm -hmm. They knew how experienced he was as as an outdoorsman, having spent a lot of time in Europe mountain climbing, biking, swimming. He was was not the type to go just crack through the ice in February, which doesn't make sense anyway. 
And there's evidence that shows that his parents actually spent thousands of dollars on various private investigators because they did not believe that their son drowned. They felt that he was still alive out there and they wanted to find him. But as these ideas are swirling around in the minds of both like the family, investigators, and us, we're left with this just utterly bizarre case with very, very few pieces of evidence to go on other than the triangle and some of the other disappearances <laughs> that have happened there. But the story doesn't end there, does no, it? No, <laughs> it does not. So his parents felt that he was still alive. Investigators didn't believe that he had drowned. And over a year had passed. And then something incredible happened. Stephen Kubaki reappeared. Completely unexpectedly. Yeah, this is where things really take a turn and start to get into some serious high strangeness, if you ask me. So we're talking roughly 14 months later. This occurred on a Saturday evening. Stephen, poof, reappears. Right. Over 700 miles due east, away from the place he was last seen or known to have visited along the shores of Lake Michigan. Stephen, quote, woke up in a grassy area of parkland in the town of Pittsfields, Massachusetts. And what was extremely interesting about this location is that it happens to match up with some family members that Kubaki had close by, which is very convenient. Yeah. It was as if he had been dropped off at home after a week at a friend's place or, you know, (laughs) sleepovering and, you know, and then uh, they just like find a spot for him. Kind of, yeah. But... Is it, is, it, is it a coincidence or is it something much deeper? We don't really know. It seems kind of, it does seem very coincidental. Mm-hmm. Oh, here you go. Yeah, it's 700, it, sounds, it sounds far away, 700 miles away. But then it's like right close to his, uh, his dad's place and his aunt's place and stuff. Hmm. Yeah, it Curious. was his aunt, correct? That was just about uh, less than 20 minutes away. Yes, like? yes. But when Stephen woke up, he was obviously a little discombobulated, a little confused, and generally... With his surroundings, with his clothing, there's a lot of different things going on here. But he obviously sees that he's in a familiar place. And he would go on to state to the local police, this is a paraphrased quote here, that he didn't immediately realize how much time had passed until he actually bought a newspaper and saw the date. Classic, right? It seems like something out of a movie. It actually does seem like something right out of a sci-fi movie. Um, So anyways, he obviously has a little bit of time to get his bearings deciding to make his way towards his aunt's house because he knows that that's the closest location um, to anyone that he knows. Yeah. So some sources did suggest that he took a bus, but uh, we'll get back to that because there's actually a little bit of uh, discrepancies when it comes to how he actually arrived at his aunt's house. And this was in Great Barrington, about 20 miles away from Pittsfield. Mm -hmm. So from there, he reunites with his family, his father, the rest of the family are stunned, obviously, that he is alive. Right. And uh, they basically reunite in a place called South Deerfield, and that is actually where he grew up originally. Mm -hmm. Uh, His parents had divorced in the interim of his disappearance, and his mother was actually remarried by this point. That was fast. I know, right? Yeah, time. Hmm. 14 months. Wow. Moving quick here. Yeah. And the story gets even stranger, as Stephen had no recollection, no memory at all of what had happened to him. However, there was some strange evidence on him that would maybe help kind of paint a picture of where he had been in the last 14 months, perhaps. So after he was reunited with his family, he's starting to gain his bearings. He realized that he had lost over a year, 14 months altogether. And he, interestingly, he had a bunch of weird statements. I think at one point he said to a local newspaper reporter, 
I feel like I've done a lot of running. Hmm. And that's kind of a weird, like, who, I don't really know how he actually meant that. Like, if he's, like, on the land, like, on the run, if he felt like he had been literally, like, if he's physically exhausted, you know what totally. I mean? Like, yeah, because basically, a marathon, exactly. Like. <laughs> so, the, yeah, the marathon. So, he, he wakes up, he's got this backpack, he doesn't recognize the backpack, he has some cash in the backpack, presumably what he would mm-hmm. have used to get to his aunt's house, yep. right? You've got some cash, get, take a cab, take a bus. And 40 bucks in the 70s, that's, like... That's a decent chunk yeah. of change. Get some lunch, get your newspaper, get a cab, whatever you need. Mm-hmm. But even stranger he has this backpack filled with uh sneakers a bunch of t-shirts one of them being from a marathon that took place in wisconsin suggesting that he had actually ran this marathon himself and there was some other things too if i recall correctly i think there was some like made homemade signs that kind of looked like they were hitchhiking signs exactly like, relating to places on the west coast if i'm not mistaken like yeah. in the san franciscan area we, we get other... that we get to that in a sec actually we have a little list of sort of the places that it sort of seemed as if he had he had made it uh, made it to in this weird 14-month journey that he doesn't remember. Mm-hmm. But I'm glad that you brought up this quote right away because, he, yeah, he states this to a newspaper reporter and presumably to the police as well, that he had felt like he had done a lot of running. Now, yeah, does this mean that he is... Is this a cheeky reference to the fact that he has uh, marathon t-shirts in this mm-hmm. mysterious backpack? Yeah. And he's like... Because I, I wrote this in here, literally, I wrote it, like, question, what was his cadence... What was the tone of his voice with this quote? Was he, like, literally. Was he, like you said, was he describing a fatigue as if he had been literally, without knowing it, for 14 months, running a bunch of marathons and he was actually tired? Or was he physically tired from running? Or mentally. Being on the run. Mm Mm-hmm. Hiding. Lying about Mm -hmm. 14 months of not knowing where he was. And this was becoming too exhausting. But then what was the purpose? What is the purpose of that? What is the purpose? And not to mention that there's no evidence to suggest that he was in any of the places that were in, that were listed. Like, so he had, okay, let's, more strange evidence. Let's review this here. Yeah. So in the backpack, Stephen has a bunch of different things. He's got t-shirts and he's wearing clothes that he doesn't actually recognize himself. Mm -hmm. It almost seems as if it's some sort of like staged runaway sort of scene. Like something like a, like a covert, like CIA ops kind of like would like, you know, (laughs) like leave someone with, they wipe their memory and then they're basically like, this paints enough of a picture to kind of like, oh, well, maybe you were in a marathon and you got hit by a car and lost your memory or something. Something Who knows? like that, yeah. I don't know. Because he's got different maps in his backpack, too. This is of all over the United States and national parks, along with these, like I mentioned, the handwritten hitchhiking signs on folded poster paper suggesting that he had traveled. Uh, this included Chicago, Utah, Sacramento, Reno, San Francisco, other parts of California. Right. So he seemingly made it quite a far distance away from the Great Lakes area. Yeah, he was on mm-hmm. the East Coast and ended up running marathons. I mean, Wisconsin's not not on the West Coast, but, but no. still, he ends up out in California and mm-hmm. uh, absolutely bizarre. Absolutely not to mention, bizarre. there's no other corroboration from locals in these areas. There's no... I know this is the 70s, too. It's not like we're living in the age of, like, super, like, you know, surveillance technology and all this kind of stuff. But there's no one that will kind of, like, come forward and be like, actually, I knew Stephen for a short period, or I ran that marathon with Stephen, or I registered him. He's on the registration. Like, is there anything like that? We don't get that. See, like, yeah, you're totally right. It's the 70s, sure, you can probably get by a lot more easily without the same checks and balances that we do today. But yeah, like, I mean, 14 months, you'd have to 
check into a hotel. You'd mm-hmm. have to have some sort of cash withdrawal to, cash to maintain or yourself. Card, yeah, so right? like you'd have to show an I- form of ID at some yeah. point. You'd think at some point there would be a record of this guy mm-hmm. actually showing his face in an establishment and yeah. being there. He and like there's other aspects you can discuss, like even just like what how disheveled was he? Was was his clothing clean? Was it dirty? Did it look like he'd been sleeping in a bush for 14 months versus actually showering? Right, versus you know showing I mean? up as if he was like, yeah, clean cut, dropped off. And like yeah. you said, you said CIA, and and that's I mean, yeah, very we'll terrestrial, terrestrial, and could could very well be because there are some conspiracy angles to this, mm-hmm. but also. Obviously, being associated with the Great Lakes Triangle, the UFO community just latched onto this story because it sounds very much like how extraterrestrials would try to make things seem normal when actually they go way too far beyond and make it so they try way too hard to make it normal. And you just plopped them down here with all these things that don't really make any sense. We'll get to that. Yeah, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves because the UFO community did really latch onto this, big especially time. one big name that we'll mention. In yes, a little bit we'll get here. to that. But Sorry, before we do that, just before we move on from all of this, sort of like, okay, I'm I'm still just trying to wrap my head around this. Like, yeah. did he did he actually have a wallet even? Like, you know, or was it just straight cash? Like, was there any form of identification? Did he remember who he was initially? He clearly remembered the area. He remembered his aunt's house. Like, I'm I'm picturing like how long did it take him to really put it together? Well, see, that's just it. It's like, if yeah, did all, he? Yeah, you know, that's a great question because I'm I'm almost reading this as if he woke up in this park in Pittsfield and immediately knew who he was like he woke up as if it was like the same day he went out for his cross-country skiing and was right. just disoriented <laughs> and not really knowing what was going on because he did say that right that that was his last memory was being on the shores of the lake exactly mm-hmm. yeah we have that quote a little further down and i wrote this question in as well here because it obvi- this would be hard to pinpoint like as an investigator or even steven himself like looking in the mirror mm-hmm. or trying to figure it out but after 14 months as if nothing had ever changed. He shows up with these new clothes. Mm. Does this mean that he was like the exact same age the day he disappeared? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Ooh, or he was he actually <laughs> was he actually fourteen months older? You'd have to like do a dating on his cells, do a little like you know. You'd have to do carbon dating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's like a trunk of a tree. <laughs> check the rings, saw yeah. off his leg, and check well, even, the rings. Even his hair. Was his hair longer? Did he have a beard? Like, you know what I mean? Like, there's, was, there's like, different well, markers yeah. that would. And it like by all accounts, he showed up like well kept. Yeah. Okay. You know what so I mean? That's kind of the, the picture we're painting here because there's not a ton of detail. There's there's some detail, like obviously, like you know, like all the trinkets and all the weird little bits in his backpack yeah but yeah but this is like kind of just the beginning there's there's these suggestions that these details being shared with reporters and investigators and you know the police and this follow-up to the missing persons case were really just the tip of the iceberg for this story and like we just said we were teeing it up the ufo community in later years would really latch onto this of course people latched onto this in the 1980s as well 70s and 80s but it was something that definitely didn't get the same international press as mm-hmm. as, it, as it would today you know mm-hmm. with shows like the unexplained and yeah. and uh being on um you know robert stack talking about it on i mean maybe it actually was a case on, Ooh, an uh, unsolved mystery. on an unsolved mystery Ooh, possibly could have been we but, should check uh, into that actually we didn't come across that in our research though. no hmm. but what we did come across was a name that everyone listening will recognize and that is giorgio suklos the UFOologist, the main guy behind Ancient Aliens. How who, many other credentials we, does he claim uh, to have? Well, he's... Okay, we actually... You and I were laughing about this earlier because the History Channel sometimes has a little bit of a... 
They get a they, little loosey-goosey. They get a little loosey-goosey with their titles for people. <laughs> and there's been various different programs, and I think on Ancient Aliens as well, where yeah. Sue Close has been introduced as an Egyptologist. Oh when we did a little bit of digging, and apparently he has just a, a bachelor, an undergraduate bachelor's degree in communications yep. from Ithaca mm-hmm. in, in the state of New York. <laughs> Fine undergraduate degree. Not necessarily the credentials necessary for interpreting <laughs> ancient e- Egyptian <laughs> hieroglyphics <laughs> and, and things like that. Yeah. But nevertheless, fascinating character and does come into this story. And of course, obviously we have to take his interpretations with a grain of salt. But... He believed that there was perhaps something fishy going on here, with not not only with this case of Stephen in the past, but also how it tied into the triangle as well. Mm-hmm. So some discrepancies with Stephen's initial interviews, though, I think is something that we should get into before we dive right into, okay. into uh, Sue Close's interpretation. Yeah, because this is interesting here. And it does tie into this idea that perhaps there is a paranormal angle to it. Mm-hmm. So a few months after Stephen miraculously reappears, returns. Where did he return from? We really don't know. We can speculate on that. But he returns, and there's this report that came out we, uh, Sorry, months later from a divinity student, another post-secondary uh, institution that was um, religious-based, mm. same as Hope College. Berkshire. Berkshire Christian College. This guy's name was Ron Curtis. He ends up contacting the Associated Press, who we've, which we've mentioned multiple times in different episodes as well, stating that he had picked up a hitchhiker who, quote, he stated, had a remarkable resemblance to Stephen Kubaki, who he ended up seeing in newspapers in the months that followed. He picked him up May 5th of 1979, the same day that Kubaki reappeared. So he was of the mind that this was the same person. So Stephen didn't take a bus, didn't take a cab, didn't use the $40 to... Mm that he found in his backpack to get one place, he decided to hitchhike, Hmm. which I find kind of strange. What was... If this is the same guy. If this is the same guy. But, I mean, it does seem to line up. It was right in the same area, same age, looked like him, all this kind of stuff. But what was weird is that Curtis said that this hitchhiker told him that he had flown in from San Francisco to Boston and then taken a bus to Pittsfield. Hmm. He said his name was Nathan. And, quote, Curtis said that he's never said anything to me about waking up on a grassy hill. Hmm. So my question is, but if Kubaki wakes up and has $40, he has the ability to get to his aunt's place without hitchhiking. That's the first sort of thing that's strange. If he woke up on a grassy hill. (laughs) If that's what happened. The second part about that that I find strange is, why would you feel the need to come up with an alias for this well, he might have been using that name for the last 14 months, so he's just still using it. And now he's like, all right, I'm ready to go home. So once he makes that sort of smooth transition, discreetly or so he thinks, takes an anonymous ride in a car with a stranger who he thinks will never come back to him, and then he can just kind of pick it up again from there. I don't know. This is actually really hmm. playing into what I kind of want to tee up next here, which is the government cover-up slash conspiracy angle. Sure. we haven't really talked about that too too much yet and you know we've talked about potential ufo activity so i think we can pepper this into the conversation as well yes (laughs) so in my mind i think that this could definitely have been something covert i think steven could have possibly even been like um some sort of secret agent of some kind okay okay agent man or definitely yeah some sort of a spy some sort of an intelligence part of the intelligence community 
related to perhaps what mm-hmm. was going on in Europe? Is that what you're suggesting? Well, perhaps, because this is the era of the Cold War. He is in German studies, among other things, philosophy. Who knows what the heck kind of ideas he had in his head here. Right. But this is interesting, too, because Kubaki himself is very quiet on this whole ordeal. He doesn't throw out any suggestions as to what he was doing in the 14 months. He's basically outright refused to answer any questions, except for, you know, in his initial sort of, like, interviews and all that kind of stuff. After that, he basically buttoned up. Yeah. Not getting anything out of Kubaki. And to this day, he's the same way. Uh, You can look him up. He actually is, I think he's a doctor at this point, and he works for... He's like a... He works for a university, I believe, in Oregon. I think he's a psychologist. Works for the uh, psychology department, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's worked at a couple different... I'm just looking here. Yeah, he was awarded a fellowship by the American Psychoanalytic Association. That's kind of crazy. No, he's had some uh, some accolades and things like that. He's also had some very strange statements over the years. Yes, he has. sort of add to the mystery because that you know out of the one side of his mouth like like you said in the initial weeks following you know he was more than happy to answer questions more than happy to tell people about his ordeal although he you know all it wasn't really that much to say because he couldn't remember all that much mm-hmm. but then yeah all of a sudden just starts just to just button up buttons up is it because you're being annoyed or is it because you're like well i've already given all the information that i'm willing to mm-hmm. or allowed to yeah just exactly. the, just enough of the breadcrumbs. Exactly. And now, I'm sh- now everybody and now, get out of here. Yeah, because he he did make a couple of statements. You've already kind of mentioned some quotes from him. He did tell a reporter in the following days after those initial interviews that he believed his blackout, quote unquote, was caused by exhaustion, exposure. He was willing to see a medical doctor, but not a psychologist or psychiatrist. That's a weird thing to just just state too. It's like. Yeah, yeah, no, I think it was from this, this, and this, and, and I'm not seeing a psychiatrist. Yeah. It's like, why would I'm you even say that? I'm not going to try and figure it out. I would want to do, like, hypnotic therapy. I'd be introducing all sorts of things to kind of figure out this mystery, because this is almost, it's funny that we were watching Citadel last night, because this is very much reminding me of the plot of Citadel to a certain degree, <laughs> where you just, like... No spoilers, like, no spoilers. No, no, of course not, but it's just the whole idea of blacking out and not knowing who you are. Right. Wouldn't you want to figure it out, Right. But, um, yeah, so he's making all these weird sort of nebulous statements, and it's not really adding up. So in my mind, this is kind of my, like, sort of theory, is that he was he was picked up by a covert helicopter. The conditions were perfect. It wasn't stormy that day. He basically abandoned all of his belongings, walked out onto that lake, and was choppered out. And basically went on a covert mission to East Germany. Ooh. Yeah, and he was there for 14 months before. He's mysteriously brought back. Okay. Okay. Who knows what the heck he was doing over there? I have no details to fill in the blanks. Okay. No, but we, well, <laughs> but not, that is not, my favorite. We theory. do have <laughs> details to fill in those blanks. We just don't have them right here. I'm glad you're teeing that up because the, I feel like it's this is kind of a possibly everything is connected type type situation, where in that that could be true, but then it's also like. Is is if that's true? If it, is this like a covert conspiracy theory angle, and we can totally run with that for mm-hmm. theories and stuff like that? Does that mean that the spot where he disappeared was chosen strategically so that they could lean on the paranormal activity that's happened in the Great Great Lakes and mm-hmm. Michigan Triangle? Very much so. So that people just get distracted. Oh it's, yeah, of it's course. very much like the whole. It's it's kind of like the the misinformation campaign, like the UFO angle. misinformation mm-hmm. campaign. Like yeah. the more stories that go out there, the harder it is to pinpoint what's real and yeah. what's not, and that's better for covert operations. Mm-hmm. I guess that kind of makes sense. It kind that of adds up. adds up. I don't know. It was the Cold War era. There was a lot of weird stuff going on. And yeah, he could have definitely been involved, maybe. We've got some details to corroborate that. But I think we'll save that for the theory section at the end. Cool. Because I really would love to jump into back to Suclos. Because 
There's the possibility that Stephen ran away, mm-hmm. somehow covered it up. There is a possibility that he was connected to something going on in Germany or in East Europe. That's possible too. Or it's possible that he was just simply taken away against his will. Mm -hmm. So let's jump into this. Because (laughs) needless to say, both the local and regional uh, UFO people latched onto this. Mm -hmm. So let's jump into that. So multiple UFO investigators and, of course, Giorgio Suclos have suggested that there is an ET phenomena involved with the Michigan Triangle and that possibly there are entities that specifically come to this site for unknown reasons, whether it's because of the concentration of energy there or possibly because of structures at the bottom of the lake that Mm. we will talk about in a little bit. Regardless, it all ties into this idea that Stephen was somehow abducted on the shores of Lake Michigan. And... Decades after this story had come and gone, there was a p- the paper from the college, Hope College, that Stephen was attending at the time, had written a paper uh, actually interviewing Suclos, and there's some very interesting quotes about this. But there was also a quote from the paper that basically said that uh, he was declared, or sorry, that he graduated in absentia from the college, and then when he miraculously returned, he actually went there and was like, hey, can I please have my my graduation certificate, and they ended up giving it to him, even really? though he technically didn't finish out to that spring. Interesting, because it does reference here in this, like, bio I found on Stephen Arkubaki online, it does mention how he graduated from first Deerfield Academy in 1972 as a day student, and mm. then he graduated from Hope College in 1979. So not 78, because 78 is when he disappeared February, yes. and yeah. then a whole 14 months later, so then he officially gets his Right. And I think they had like, Mm -hmm. I think they had sort of just like um, symbolically given it to him when he was still missing, probably for the family or something like this. I hear you. And then of course he shows up and is like, hey, you already gave it to me and now I'm back. Now I'm back. (laughs) Or maybe he completed it in a covert operation in East Berlin over the last 14 months. Doing some, uh, yeah, doing some Zoom, doing some uh, remote assignments. No, but uh, maybe, no, maybe it's real (laughs) life assignments, man. Ooh. So the student newspaper that reported about him receiving his degree when he came back and also had this interview with Suclos is called The Anchor. And it was kind of hard to tell if the entire newspaper is a mix of like actual reporting and also kind of like, I don't want to call it creepy pasta, but just sort of like creative writing pieces. Mm-hmm. Okay. It seemed like they didn't do a very good job of differentiating that on the website, but this was an actual interview with Suclos. One of these correspondents from the anchor talks about, talks to Giorgio A. Suclos regarding disappearances within the Lake Michigan Triangle. And his response is somewhat predictable and to be taken with a grain of salt. His quote was, the answer of course is simple. It was aliens. <laughs> With his hands up like this and his hair standing 15 feet tall. (laughs) But what is really weird is that in this article, it actually references that Suclos rents an office at Hope College in Michigan. Uh, Like, this totally caught me off guard. And when I mentioned it to you, it it caught us off guard too. (laughs) It's referenced in a couple of different blogs along with this article from The Anchor, which we can post so you guys can check it out as well, but states that Suclos rents an office and heads a completely unrecognized branch of the university called the Department of UFOlogy and Speculative Science. (laughs) Not recognized by Hope College. How do they let this happen? (laughs) So I'm just assuming this is kind of like those rental rooms that we used to have at UBC Okanagan where it's like a large space. Maybe you could rent it for a week at a time or something like that. Mm. I thought it was more by the hour. Well, there was definitely some by the hour. I feel like there was larger spaces you could rent for 
projects I guess if for you're, long. I, if you're willing I to mean, pay and the college is hurting for funds, like maybe that's right. why. Uh, this was a very strange quote to kind of go along with this uh, from uh, article October 30th, 2020 from the Anchor Hope College. Quote, this is from an unknown source. This quasi-department is not recognized by the university, but this hasn't stopped Suclos from taking over room 117 in the Shap Science Center and shouting at students who pass by. <laughs> We're going to get abducted by <laughs> Is he shouting at these students who pass, <laughs> pass by? So in regards to Kubaki and his disappearance, mm-hmm. this is what Sue Close had to say. This is, quote, The government has tried to cover it up, even to this day. There's very little information on the case. And Kubaki hasn't exactly been very vocal about his experience, but you can't deny that it happened. This wouldn't be the first time that such a thing has happened at Hope College. Mm-hmm. End quote. That's from Sue Close. Eh? That's from Sue Close. That's interesting. So that even almost uh, lends support to my government conspiracy angle. A little mm-hmm. bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, and in, in what way just specifically? Like, Well, just the fact that well, he's saying, and honestly, I don't really take anything Sue Close. I take it with a huge grain of salt. I'm yes. talking like a like a boulder size grain of salt. Um, the, the fact that he's like, oh, the government has tried to cover it up. In which ways, I'm actually wondering. Um, and then, but also the idea that this hadn't happened, this has happened before at Hope College. Mm-hmm. Maybe there is a covert agent program at Hope College. I suppose it would be like the most unassuming place for mm. there to be something like that. Right? Um, Reminds me of an episode of X-Files. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> we will get into more of that in the theory section because I'm actually loving, as we're talking about this more and more here and we're easing into this case, like I'm leaning more towards your mm-hmm. theory. Oh, yeah. Conspiracy covert it's operations for sure. But focusing on the UFO angle for just one more minute here, Suclos used a modern case to kind of juxtapose and compare the disappearance of Stephen Kubaki and started talking about this case about a a student around the same age, a junior at the college named Jack Soren, who went uh, missing in October of 2020. Now, before I even just really get into the meat of this, I'm going to briefly go through this case. I want to state that Suclos mentions this in this article but I couldn't find him mentioning it in any other blogs that were associated with Sue Close. I also couldn't find the name Jack Soren in any records from Hope College. Interesting. Um, or articles about his disappearance, per se. Mm. There are there hmm. were some sort of similar things talking about, uh, like a missing student without a, a name being stated. Mm-hmm. And then there's also other names associated with this story that are real. But anyway, we're taking it with a grain of salt because it's a Sue Close story. But nonetheless, it does tie in to the UFO angle. So he mentions this case, Jack Soren, a junior at Hope College. His roommate's name was Ryan Lauder and basically started to get worried after Jack didn't return from, very much like Kubaki, spending some time near the shores of Lake Michigan near Holland. And one of these friends told Ryan that they recalled that Soren had mentioned that he was going to go for a walk by the beach. So yeah, the, tons of similarities to Kubaki. Mm-hmm. Going out by himself, tells some friends beforehand, doesn't come back. So when he doesn't return, his roommate goes down to the tunnel where he would normally find, uh, where people would park their cars to then go and walk along this path along the lake. He finds Jack's car there, and all of his stuff's still left inside. His backpack was on the seat, various other items that indicated that, quote, he had definitely been there, he'd definitely driven here and gone out to the beach, but I couldn't find any trace of him, end quote. This was Mm. his roommate, Ryan. So immediately a search began. There's friends and also presumably search and rescue, although the article didn't actually state that specifically. They comb through, quote, Tunnel Park. This is uh, the area where he parked and also Tunnel Park Beach. The surrounding woodland as well, which spanned for several, several acres over this distance by the park. And they couldn't find anything. So unlike Kubaki with his skis and backpack, 
nothing was found aside from the car parked and abandoned. So the Holland police, again, very much like uh, Kubaki, they don't really have an explanation for this. It's like he just vanished off the beach, is what one person remarked or was quoted as stating. The chief of uh, Holland police, this is another discrepancy because in the article it says Chief Brown of the Holland Police Department. I couldn't find a Chief Brown. There was Mm. a couple other officers with the last name Brown. So maybe it's just a misquote. But quote from the article says Chief Brown of the Holland Police stated that we're just waiting for a body to wash up on shore, if I'm being honest. Mm -hmm. Kind of the same sentiment as the first initial search that Kubaki had simply drowned, just fallen through the ice. But as the weeks passed, nothing was found. So same sort of idea. And this is where the theories began to emerge amongst the friends, classmates, and people within the area of Holland that something strange must have happened to Jack. There was one student, a friend of Jack's, and also uh, one of the writers for the anchor at Hope College named Zach Dankert. He's uh, actually, so I have it here, he's the campus co-editor of the anchor from 2020 to 2021. He believed that there was something much more strange going on within the lake, and there was something that perhaps this guy Jack had actually tapped into somehow. He was quoted as saying, No one understands this at all. He legit pulled a, quote, Elsa and found the magic glacier. He's in the middle of Lake Michigan singing Show Yourself as We Speak. So that is a absolutely bizarre quote. Uh, We're not big fans of the movie Frozen, but that is what that is referencing. But essentially, uh, he it's a very odd way of describing that he's basically saying that this guy's like a self-professed Frozen enthusiast and believe that there was perhaps something within the lake responsible for the disappearance. Hmm. Or he's just making light of the situation and in my mind almost speaks to the idea that the whole story might be a hoax. Yeah, it, it very much smacks as that. It, it very much smacks as that, yeah. for sure. Mm-hmm. The only name that we could actually corroborate as existing is Zach Dankert as the writer for one of the co-editors of uh, of The Anchor. I see. And so like he might a, have just made all of these names up. Chief Brown. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I mean, he would have done some due, gil- due diligence. There's There are some of these names that match up, but it's such a recent case that it's very strange that we couldn't find uh, a direct article to it. So this is kind of like part of the problem with the triangles and some some of these some of these stories, right? It is kind of hard to get to a meat of, the meat of it, especially when you're tossing out names like Giorgio Suclos that are attached to some of these theories, you know what mm, I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a believable story in the sense that it's just another vanished person possibly being associated with their being drawn to the lake. I think I think the reason that it was so interesting to me and I wanted to include mm. it was the connection between, yes, that's a very weird quote associating with Frozen and this idea of some sort of a monument or a, quote, magic glacier in the lake. <laughs> but it's this idea wow. that Kubaki was somehow distracted by something on the ice. Something had caught his attention that made him black out mm-hmm. and walk out onto the ice. And lose 14 months. And allegedly. lose 14 months, allegedly. And that's sort of, that's just sort of what this reminded me of. This idea mm-hmm. that perhaps this this character that we can't actually corroborate was drawn out to the lake. You mean Jack Soren? Yeah. There was something hmm. drawing him there. There was some strange presence, strange energy actually making him go there by himself. If he exists And this is why it has this extraterrestrial vibe. This is why Sue Close brought up the story mm. in this article, presumably, and why people in the UFO community believe that the case of Kubaki is an abduction case. Yeah. Because huh. because of that. It's, it, it has that very, There's like... that modern uh, corporation. It has that... It, it has that yeah, it has all the hallmarks of it. You you lose your memory. You have time slip. 
you can't remember what happened. You're mm-hmm. inexplicably drawn to somewhere where you don't remember. Mm-hmm. Hmm. What do you think? I'm thinking some weird thoughts right now. I hear what you're saying there. In my mind, I'm almost going one layer deeper into the onion and thinking if this was all just a creepy pasta, and they actually what if <laughs> what if uh, uh, Sucolus doesn't even exist on Hope College campus at all, and his quotes were just like made up and peppered into the story to add legitimacy to a creepy pasta piece. Um, okay. Even the name, sorry, just even yeah. the name Jack Soren uh, is can be a little bit. Uh, significant, I would say. Uh, like Soren in itself, that is actually um, the first name of a very famous Danish theologian philosopher. Mm. Uh, it's actually kind of funny because our friend Mike Anderson actually just released a wine under the name Soren. It's like a collaborative piece. Wow, and it is talking about. So he was actually one of the first existentialist philosophers. And obviously, when you're dealing with existentialism, you're dealing with all sorts of issues related to human existence and. Um, uh, just all sorts of crazy things like the purpose, meaning, all these questions. And just going back to even the original Stephen Kubaki, he was studying uh, philosophy at Hope College too. Absolutely. So there might be a, a really big tie-in to that. And I, obviously they yeah. might be playing with words and they might be having some fun with it too. But that just instantly reminded me of that for right. whatever reason. And if right. we can't corroborate that Jack Soren actually existed, no, and we yeah. should be able to because it is a very modern story. Yeah. Does he have a Facebook account? Like, you know I what looked I mean? at all this. So I exactly. couldn't find him on Facebook. Nothing. I could, But I could find Zach so, Dankert. I could find so it's almost some like, others like that. Maybe Zach himself is pulling some Elsa magic and making the story come to life. Possibly. Just to have some fun with it. I don't know. It's possible. It just, it just, like I said um, off the bat before I reading that, it just seemed strange because, like, we're familiar with, like, um, you know, university publications when we were in school and stuff like that. And it was pretty easy to differentiate what was, like, just a, uh, like, a creative writing piece and what was, like, an, an, uh, an interview or an article. Well, and on yeah. this website, it's just not differentiating. No, it's not. So it's, exactly. it is hard. So and clearly some of them are just articles because yeah. they're just literally plain Jane. It's, like, an article on Hope uh, from the anchor about, um, you know, an archaeological expedition in the forest of Michigan, and this is what they found. And it's, like, very much an academic mm-hmm. article. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So that's where it just gets a little bit strange. Yeah, but you're right. Zone. You're right about the... That is a weird sort of connection, the mm-hmm. Soren, this, this existential philosophy <laughs> angle. No, it is. Oh. It, it's fascinating because yeah. later on in life, Kubaki, who ends up basically... Uh, we kind of skipped over it a little bit here, but there's this friend that he... Uh, it was actually a student of his later in life named Dylan James Quarles, who mm. authored a book called The Quantum Biography of Stephen Kubaki. Right. He's the one who essentially states that he has like the definitive full account, full story of what happened to Stephen, even though uh, you'd think by now people would have purchased, read the book, and there'd be multiple mm. articles kind of breaking it down because it's been out for some time. We didn't have time to buy it and read it for, for this episode. Could you even find it, though? I thought it was really Very, very hard to find. find it. It's kind of like one of those things you might have to go through, like an A books, pay $300 for it type of thing to yeah. find. Very hard mm-hmm. to find. But it, it, it gave me this impression that it was very much for marketing purposes, right? Like, oh, mm-hmm. like I've got this definitive account. Yet the quotes that were used to kind of prop it up from Stephen, from Kubaki in this book were very ex- existential, mm-hmm. very strange. Like mm-hmm. quotes like, I- I've got some at the bottom. I'm going to s- lose my place if I, s- if I scroll through here. But tying into stuff like with that name, Soren, that the world is not how we see it and that things aren't at all how we perceive and time mm-hmm. is nebulous and all yeah. this kind of strange stuff as if that 14 months really changed his perspective on mm-hmm. reality. Exactly. Which is... Uh, Who knows what happened in that 14 Which months. is fascinating. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah, 
so just coming back again to that story of Soren, we don't actually know. Um, we can't. We can't fully corroborate that. But the point is that it ties into things that we can't corroborate, and those are disappearances within the mysterious Michigan Triangle. Mm-hmm. And we've covered this before, like we said, but we wanted to just maybe jump through a couple of the most prominent cases yeah. to kind of back this up because there are just so many and uh, these are kind of the most bizarre ones. It, yeah, there was a few I just wanted to briefly touch on here and all coming from this particular triangle, Lake Michigan. Yeah, we've we already defined just, it. It yeah. basically is the area between uh, Lewington, Michigan, Benton Harbor, Michigan, and then stretching into Manitowoc, Wisconsin. So that would be the southern part of the triangle there. Gotcha. There are so many disappearances within this area. Is there a common connection? You know, like there's there's lots of commonplace things as far as like human error, uh, equipment malfunctions, things like that. But there's, you know, there's also elements that lead to high strangeness too. Mm-hmm. And over the course of hundreds of years, there's been many instances of these strange inexplicable events happening in this particular region, some of which we did discuss in our Great Lakes Triangle investigation. So I just want to touch on these really briefly here. Sure. I'm going to touch on three, actually. The first one is coming from 1979, and that was the case of the Griffin, or Le Griffon. Right. The first ship to set sail on the Great Lakes and disappeared on her maiden voyage. So this was on a course to set sail through Lake Erie, Huron, and Michigan, and it allegedly disappeared somewhere in the vicinity of Michigan. Mm. Since its sinking, the remains of the Griffin have never been conclusively discovered, although there have been claims made throughout the years, leading researchers to call this one the white whale of shipwreck hunters. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of interesting, over 22 claims have been made to find it over the years, but none have been substantiated thus far. No. So it's a very mysterious case. The next one I wanted to touch on dates back a little bit later, we're talking 1891, the schooner of Thomas Hume disappeared without a trace. No wreckage ever recovered. This was on a sailing from Chicago to pick up Lungbear in Michigan. Right. Several sailors, including the captain, were never recovered. And at the time, it was interesting. A lot of sailors were speculating it was most unusual for a wooden vessel not to have any floating wreckage. So something very, very wrong happened here. But actually, this is kind of interesting. Uh, and even lends itself to more of mystery in my mind. The wreck was eventually uh, recovered in this case. It was surveyed in 2010, and it was found to be completely right side up. So it's just like as if it just dropped to the bottom. Right. How does that happen? So I and, and you know what we've been watching this really fascinating show recently mm-hmm. on the Bermuda Triangle, like where yeah. they're out there searching for different wrecks and and sites of strange things, and that reminds me of that. Like mm-hmm. where it's something that like oh like could there have been some sort of a sinkhole. And like that's what caused the, that's what caused this perfect like suck down of this ship. Yeah. And I I suppose that's possible. Like mm-hmm. there are there's there could be some karst landscape that yeah. stretch underneath the, the lake and stuff like that. There's it's not the same stuff. as like off the coast of Florida though. You know no, what I mean? Like no, so yeah. that it it is very strange. There is like a very spooky element to that where it's like it's as if it's almost like snap your fingers and you were upright on the surface and now you're upright on the very bottom mm, yeah because <laughs> like, if it was odd. like a like a <laughs> electronic fog like bonk, bonk, now you're, you're there and now you're there exactly uh there was the edmund Fitzgerald too that one is very very well known and we've talked about that extensively so i'm going to just skip over that one but there was this other case of missing people so i just want to talk about this one really briefly too the bizarre case of captain george r donner which is one of the most mysterious Michigan Triangle cases, in my opinion, mm-hmm, here. Mm-hmm. And this occurred on April 28th of 1937. 
It was alleged that Captain Donner vanished from his cabin after guiding his ship through icy waters. He allegedly went to his cabin to rest, and after about three hours, a crew member went to fetch him, only to discover that he was missing. And this is very interesting. So the door was completely locked from the inside. He had to break into the cabin, only to find it empty. There was a search that turned up no clues, no body, and no evidence to suggest what had ever happened. Mm-hmm. Donner's disappearance remains unsolved. Yeah. So that's weird. Did he just, like, hop out the porthole? See, well, <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, yeah, suicide. Why? Yeah, suicide, I guess, is a potential explanation. But mm-hmm. that that does tie into the case we're talking about today. Because mm-hmm. it's just a straight-up individual human being. It's yeah. not the entire ship that goes down inexplicably or just vanishes inexplicably. It's one person. And so that, like, it's just so strange. It's not as if it's like, here's this massive triangle that stretches from all these locations that you just that you just said there. And if you're within it, then that's basically, anything can happen, even though that's true. This is like so pinpoint accurate. Like if it is a paranormal event happening, it's like a lightning strike like, kind of version of, mm. of this paranormal thing. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, boom, right down, just the captain is missing. Just Kubaki's missing, with mm. no disturbance in the, in the trees, no disturbance on the snow. Yeah. Very, very, very strange. Odd. Yeah, that disappearance of, of Captain Donner is definitely one of my favorites and one of the one of the spookiest, for sure, because obviously he never reappeared 14 months later. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, which mm-hmm. leads me to speculate. It's like, well, like Stephen, if we believe his disappearance to be as it as it appears, then does that mean Captain Donner is still left out there in some sort of weird liminal space, <laughs> and he just didn't happen to be miraculously returned somehow? I don't know. That would really suck. Let's hope for uh, Captain Donner that he just drowned, because that sounds like a horrible, horrible purgatory. But also a very fascinating paranormal angle. Ooh, gives me the shivers. <laughs> One of the things that this kind of led us down into, though, um, theories-wise, was the idea of the connection between these strange happenings, these clearly strange energies that are attached to some of these but this bizarre phenomena, whether it be changing the weather just like out of nowhere on the lake and sinking ships, or just outright individual human beings going missing, that there could possibly be a connection to much more ancient things that are evidenced before the lake actually formed, things that could be found beneath the surface of the water, as if to say, essentially, unexplained archaeology that could tie into some of this high strangeness. And Lake Michigan is home to a series of various different ancient sites and markers, one of them being extremely noteworthy, and it's been way blown out of proportion online, referring to it as the Lake Michigan Stonehenge. We are not going to refer to it as that. I'm just stating that for the fact, the record right now, because that's what you're going to see online as mm-hmm. it's referred to. And actually, interestingly, the images that are used for a lot of the articles talking about Lake Michigan Stonehenge, it's Corner. literally the, it looks like a Stonehenge, these large standing stones, like pillars, and it's literally the image of the hull of one of the missing ships. That's like these like individual uh, beams mm. sticking out of the sand, and it looks like looks like a perfect circle, but it's actually wood and it's not uh, a Stonehenge at all. So if you see that image, that's not what we're talking about. But what we're talking about is a series of standing stones, very similar to the Rollwright stones, if you guys remember that episode, Mm -hmm. which we talked about in detail being associated with witchcraft and also extremely uh, powerful energies that could be harnessed within these stone circles. And they're located across the world. We don't actually know fully what these were built for. But 
within the triangle, or at least close to the triangle, there's a bunch of different structures. The most noteworthy is over 10,000 years old. It was created before the lake took its final form at the end of the last ice age. It was discovered in 2007 by a marine archaeologist named Dr. Mark W. Hawley. was working for the University of Michigan at the time. And essentially, they weren't even looking for archaeological sites at all. They were, well, not ancient ones anyway. They were documenting wreck sites in an attempt to protect them because a lot of them are in very shallow water and very popular for divers. But what's happened over the decades is they've been looted and, Mm -hmm. you know, taking pieces of the wood for trophies for divers and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. So they were attempting to map these sites in order to protect them when they accidentally came across this large arrangement of stones running along the sandy bottom with no other rocks around them at all. This was a very distinct location that clearly had been made by ancient human beings. Generally in the area of Grand Traverse Bay. This is in the northeastern area of Lake Michigan. And it sounds as if that would be very easy to pinpoint, but Grand Traverse Bay is actually quite a massive area. So... The exact location has not been disclosed because of uh, the request from the local indigenous population. They do not want it to be... Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't want people going down there and messing Disturbed, with it, essentially, yeah. right? Mm-hmm, yeah. So what they came across was incredible. This otherwise sandy bottom was covered with these standing stones, and it ran in essentially a perfect line that led into a circle-like formation. Even more interesting, one of these stones, quite large was located just off to the center of the circle and has a petroglyph on it featuring a mastodon. So massive, uh, relative of the elephant, right? Mm -hmm. A creature that has not lived in this landscape of North America for well over 10,000 years. So that's definitely putting a date on this site. Exactly. Ancient. About a five foot uh, across by three feet high boulder is what this petroglyph was carved on. Mm -hmm. So a decent size, not not massive, massive. We're not talking like uh, Stonehenge in the UK sized Mm -hmm. stones, but still very significant. And it was placed in such a way that it almost seemed to be some sort of an entrance marker, either to explain explain Mm -hmm. the reason or the significance of the line and the circle itself or for some other for some other purpose. Mm -hmm. There's some speculation that this site was either related to ancient hunting and was some sort of a drive line, which is essentially like a uh, a line made out of stones that you would then coerce like animals to then go through, yep. and then they would head into a pen where they could be easily killed. Mm-hmm. Kind and of corralling them a little bit. Exactly. And if this is true, it would be the oldest ever found. But there's also some speculation that it has more similarities to the unexplained stone circles found in other parts of the world, like the Rollwright stones in the UK. So there might have been some sort of ritualistic significance that we just don't really fully comprehend. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, this has kind of been taken and used by, uh, you know, people that are paranormal investigators who really want to, like, attach to the strangeness of this and use the fact that the site has these sort of strange aspects to it, but also that the Chippewa tribes of the area have asked Dr. Hawley and the University of Michigan to not disclose the location conspiracy theorists have ran with this they've used this as fuel that this site is somehow hiding something or that there's <laughs> okay. some sort of more secrets to be located beneath the, the stones mm, or something like this more ancient structure don't get me wrong i i love some of this indiana jones kind of vibes and stuff like that but there is also like a heavy r- racism involved with it a lot of the time as well yeah. because mm-hmm. a lot of paranormal investigators have latched onto this name the michigan stonehenge and used it to very, very loosely associated with ideas of Atlanteans, much more advanced Ice Age civilizations that were 
white people, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, go listen to the uh, archive episode of Nazi Archaeology with me and Nick, because that kind of ties into a lot of that stuff. <laughs> that is not what we're talking about today. But rather, what we're talking about today is these types of monuments and stone circles are markers that are often placed in very special geo points that are tapping into something called the magnetotelluric current. We've mentioned this before. We talked about it with the Rollroyd stones. They're located right along this grid section of the earth. And how exactly these were pinpointed by ancient peoples and why they were used or how they were used for ritualistic purposes is still unknown. But it's this idea that perhaps long before the lake was formed, there was an energy that was being tapped into by ancient humans. Whether or not it was advanced Ice Age civilizations, that's a completely separate conversation. They don't have to be advanced. They were just connected to the earth. Mm -hmm. They knew how to function in and amongst this area that we're now perceiving as the Michigan Lake Triangle, where paranormal things happen, but perhaps it was being tapped into by more ancient people. This is left over at the bottom of the lake. Could there be a connection to Mm -hmm. some of the strange things that happen? Could that have been an attempt to harness the very same energy that is now still existing thousands of years later, accidentally creating circumstances where people can disappear? Mm-hmm. And since we're not really tapped into that particular form of knowledge, it is just a mystery to us. Mm-hmm. I mean, this idea has been kind of done to death that these stones are, you know, channeling energy and stuff like that, but it is connected to a lot of different things. They're used to channel energy for health, for spiritual wellness. They've definitely been used for ritual ceremonies connected to possibly different gateways to other dimensions, at least in a philosophical way. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? The idea of a shaman transcending to a different place and things like that, depending on where you are in the world looking at these stones, but that's very much what it's tapped into. And I find that to be just absolutely fascinating. What, what, to be a fly on the wall for some sort of a ritual activity before the lake was there. Mm -hmm. Just think about that. This is a massive body of water. Mm -hmm. And here we have humans moving these massive stones for reasons unknown. Was it really just to have a driveline? Like, it's almost like the rocks don't seem big enough to have a driveline. Were you driving through there? Rabbits? Not mastodons. Wow. Like, the, the stones weren't guidance. big enough. Like, Are you sure? I, I mean... <laughs> we would have to look at other comparable examples, and I haven't really done that research, but... Yeah, no, I, I think that's, it's definitely plausible that it was used as a driveline, and perhaps, yeah, like the um, archaeologists allude to, like, per, there's other forms that we perhaps just, yeah, don't... And what's the really connection to, to the triangle itself? What's what's the connection to the triangle? That's, that's the big mm-hmm. question with this for me. Because um, it technically lies outside of the triangle. It technically does lie outside the triangle, yeah. for sure. And it sort of just ties into this idea that there are these mysteries across the whole lake. The triangle's just one of them. Mm-hmm. There's actually another series of ancient stones, or at least some people perceive them to be ancient, that's located uh, off Lake Michigan as well. It's on a place called Beaver Island, I believe it's called. Yeah, Beaver Island is a 397-foot stone circle various different shapes and sizes and at the center of it there's actually a central stone with a series of unusual carvings on it and there's actually a bowl shape to it that was weird that reminded me of mm. the photo we took when we were going through um the ancient site of tulum yeah and there was that sort of um same sort of uh, it looked it looked like that there was a line of um stones placed up to an altar where there clearly was some sort of a carved bowl shaped stone mm. to collect blood what was that used for was it just i mean it, it sounded distinctly mesoamerican to me when i read read this article Mm, and I was like huh that's interesting because that kind of reminds me of the movie Black Mountainside where they were discovering in the far north of Canada yeah like what presumably seemed to be ancient Mesoamerican like way earlier 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 ancient sites and I still love that aspect to this we're not getting into that today but the point of just mentioning this is that there are there's this other 
strange stone circle located on this island in Lake Michigan that's associated with weird magnetic anomalies as well. I found a video on Facebook of this guy walking around talking about how amazing these stones were and how they just seemed so out of like why out of place like they seem more ancient they shouldn't be there and he actually mapped it out and it seemed like it aligns with the midsummer solstice Mm -hmm. Um, which a lot of these stones do do. a lot of them either solstice or uh, the equinoxes they will align with the rising and setting of the sun on those particular dates exactly again that goes back to just ancient earth-connected knowledge forms. Absolutely, because now we would just perceive that as basically just associated with, like, farming or just, like, your calendar or whatever, right? But could there have been a more... a connection beyond just the spiritual and the mm-hmm. practicality of mapping out the summer solstice? That I guess that's kind of the point. That's, that's, that's the mystery. Yeah. Archaeologists have done their due diligence with this, but they haven't been able to turn up any other prehistoric uh, materials nearby to suggest that a ultra-ancient peoples uh, place these stones, but the same goes for the stones at the bottom of Grand Traverse Bay. There's no pottery nearby, there's no other tools nearby or things like this, Mm -hmm. and so it is very much left a mystery. Mm -hmm. Could ancient peoples have actually known about the energies responsible for some of these disappearances? I don't know, but that's what I wanted to bring (laughs) up. That's what we're going to chalk it up to. (laughs) That's what I want to bring. Well, I mean, the the indigenous populations have definitely known about the dangers of the lake for thousands of years. It's it's the same goes for any place. It's a body of water that's very unpredictable and can have so many, like, like storms whip up in an instant. Mm -hmm. We talked about that. We talked about the rogue waves Mm -hmm. on this lake that can come out of nowhere. Rogue waves on a lake. Bizarre. And if you're on the lake and in a canoe or something that's very tippy and small, of mm-hmm. course it's going to be like, you know, that's that's rich with fables. Of, you like, have you to know, wonder the... if um, some of these indigenous groups knew of this archaeological site long before it was even discovered. Just like through Probably. oral tradition and yeah. sort of like memory, like shared memory perhaps. Because obviously it's, it's over 10,000 years old, which is fascinating. Mm-hmm. But this brings us down to our Final theories and All thoughts, right. because we don't know what the hell happened Let's to Stephen. Let's get back to Stephen Kubeck. He ain't telling us what happened to him. <laughs> he's not. He He's a closed book on the topic. So let's just run through some of these. So the amnesia angle, how, what do we think about that? Okay. Um, there could be some evidence to suggest he's like, he had amnesia, he was wandering around the U.S. That is a, for me, that doesn't really work. There would be more evidence to kind of corroborate where he had been, at the very least. And if you had amnesia, you'd, you'd think you would have been able to find out who you were relatively quickly in the States. Yeah. In the 70s, you know what I mean? Like... I don't know who I am, and I don't know where I am. Um, someone just take a photo, of, or just go to a police station. Well, not only like, you know that, I mean? but like, how just... do you end up at your aunt's house? Like, you know, like, and, and you don't even, you don't come forward with that whole journey. You know what I mean? Like, that to me just is not very plausible, just because or, of the way he behaved no, after. No, no. So, like, oh my god, it's a miracle. It's not like he's giving interviews like we see on, like, The Unexplained, with, like, this lady that's going to hit by lightning five times, and she's going to go talk about her story. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. he's not doing that. No, so, no, that not. to me either speaks to, did he fake it? Did he just want to run away? Was he involved in some sort of conspiracy, some sort of, like, government covert program? Okay, let's get into faking it then. So let's let's break down that as an angle. So could it be an outright hoax that he just ran away? Why, why was he alone this entire time? Why didn't any of his friends want to go with him on this, this fake-out journey or what? Did he have any friends? I'm just are, Right? <laughs> are they... Even initially, like, why did he even go out on his own? Like, nobody was into cross-country skiing? Or mm-hmm. like, or was that the perfect setup for faking your own disappearance? Mm-hmm. But yeah, the evidence doesn't really seem to point this way. No, there was a guy, another student, his name was Bob Namar, and he was another Hope graduate from the same era, 1978. He didn't know Kubaki as a close friend, but apparently knew him through classes and 
obviously he heard more about him after the disappearance, but Mm -hmm. he did state to reporters that were investigating and writing stories on the case that he was a brilliant guy, a little more free-spirited than the average student, and um, that maybe kind of points to him just wanting to take off on the lamb, try to figure it out. I don't know. I mean, and then I, that yeah. again, kind of if if we're going to believe not believe, but like if if it was the same guy that that hitchhiker, like the hitchhiker guy, what was the I can't remember the name of the guy that picked him up allegedly, but he comes with out with the story that oh he has this different name. He's telling me like you know he just flew in from San Francisco. That would align with his backpack, all his belongings. Why would you even? This is again kind of weird to me. Why would you even have all that stuff on you? Why? Like why would you just ditch it all? Why have anything? Unless you just want keepsakes from your time, and you're just like, oh, well, I can't explain these. Oh, but but that's yeah, that's just it. I almost believe him that he didn't know. Well, unless we're going the full conspiracy angle, because yeah, it just seems like that's that's the evidence for Suclos and the UFO community. It's like the stuff he ended up showing up with was so on the nose Mm -hmm. that it seems so like fabricated. That it is as if he had just been dropped off and it's like, okay, we're just going to make it look as if like this guy had amnesia. Here's, here's Mm -hmm. a, here's a t-shirt from a marathon. Here's some poster board. Was the poster board even in his handwriting? Like, I don't know. Like that wasn't corroborated. Like nobody talked about that. Yeah. So there's a lot of inconsistencies and a lot of things in that regard. Yeah. People didn't ask him about this though. They were like, did you run away? Like, was this fake? Mm -hmm. And did you want to read this quote here that he gave from his father? Yeah, so he didn't have a lot of reasons to leave, especially in an abrupt manner such as what happened. He allegedly, he had a quote from, a, like, that a reporter quoted him on, saying that he, this is from Kubaki, says, My father was going to sign over the house to me. I had three courses at school and no trouble. I left a romance in Germany. There was no trouble with girls. I had a job lined up with the Holland Sentinel newspaper, end quote. So why would the, you leave? No, what's the key phrase in there for the me? Girlfriend in Germany. Yep, I think he went to pursue the covert romance. Interesting. Fellow secret agent. Interesting. Steven. This other little uh, section we have be- beneath her, though, also ties into back to that that book that was written that allegedly has the definitive account. And then later, Kubaki ends up co-authoring a book of his own, and it's just like, huh, you clearly were impacted by this. And is this just another kind of like way to distract from? From potentially a conspiracy angle, because in 2018, Kubaki co-authors a book called The Inconsistencies and Incompleteness of Our Understanding of Reality, Meta-Mathematical Foundations of Existence, hmm. Godel, Quantum, God, and Beyond. <laughs> right. That is a mouthful right there. We need to read that. So that was definitely fueling the speculation that something extraordinary had happened to him, because he's talking about some pretty <clears throat> Soren, the existential kind of mm-hmm. crazy yeah. type stuff there, that maybe he really really did just disappear for a year and didn't age mm-hmm. for 14 months. And his perception of reality after this had been completely changed. Yeah. Or... And do you really want... Because maybe he's a quiet person and maybe he's just the type that he's not going to open up because he doesn't want to sound like a crazy person. He wants to have a career and he wants to be in academia. So he's going to keep it a little bit closer to the chest. Sure. You know I mean? And you can, you can write and talk about some of these more like adjacent paranormal topics because they're related to quantum physics. You don't mm-hmm. seem as crazy. Yeah. You're not you're not writing like John A. Keel where it's literally just each chapter is just like crazier than the last without no. anything really to kind of back it up mm-hmm. other than anecdotes or whatever. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. But Let's... this brings us to Amber's favorite 
Well, there's theory. another little piece of evidence to lend its support to my favorite theory mm-hmm. here. And interestingly enough, we have admissions from Stephen himself. This is in later interviews with the quantum biography. Uh, he was actually studying and traveling in Europe when he met a love interest that was somehow involved with radical groups. So this is obviously Cold War era, pre-Berlin Wall coming down. Mm-hmm. There's some real danger and espionage, and, and it was real. It was happening. It was almost like a James Bond book, but it a really real was. thing. So he does admit to being involved with some of these groups. Could he have been chosen to go on some sort of covert mission for them? Um, in conjunction with the government, or maybe not, maybe just like our own sort of radical group. It's Who possible. knows? It's possible. I don't know. I, I, I'm not going to discount it. There were definitely accounts of him spending, when he was in Germany, spending time with like the classic kind of like, you know, like beret wearing, cafe, cigarette smoking, plotting sort of revolutionary types, uh, the German Che Guerva types of the. Uh, of the 1970s, so that definitely kind of checks out. There's also and, some evidence to support this. Well, allegedly, there was a couple that saw a man, this is the day before Kubaki disappeared, mm-hmm. they saw a young man rough, roughly resembling Kubaki on the shores of the lake, and he was not alone. He was with a young, petite female with long, dark hair. So that's interesting, because no one really knew who she could be. Mm-hmm. He didn't have any girlfriends locally. They were all overseas. Da, da, da. So yeah, maybe so this was, was the setup. Maybe this was him. Yeah, he says he's going out by himself. Anyway. He says he's going cross-country skiing. He ends up mm-hmm. taking off the pack and the skis. He's crawling up on top of some boulders, and maybe that's where he got picked up by the chopper. Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> uh, or maybe they just use some simple just branches to wash away the, the tracks. To brush them away. Yeah. To brush them away. And then they just hope that there's enough of a wind around, and by the time people notice that he's gone, it'll be a few hours, so it'll be even mm-hmm. more of a chance of them getting farther away. Right. I don't know. The Yeah, I mean, that definitely serves sort of like, yeah, that could be evidence to support this. I mean, yeah, like there's comments from various different students and then the dean saying that, you know, he hung out with a group of, quote, weird friends on campus, but nobody knew of any girlfriend locally. He says himself in that last mm-hmm. one, his romance was back in back in Germany. Yeah. And the idea that his parents and his brother hired this private detective. Actually, this is a funny quote here. The detective service was called the Fatman Detective Service, uh, located out of Grand Rapids, Michigan. And they hired him for almost a full year to try to track him down. And it's sort of strange that... They couldn't afford the Pinkertons. They eh? couldn't afford the... Yeah, no Pinkertons, (laughs) just the Fatmans. It's... It, it, it sort of, it rings true to me that he would be involved in some sort of espionage if you're not going to tell anyone in your family anything. It's one mm-hmm. thing to not tell your parents, but by all accounts, he did have a good relationship with his brother. And to have your family be spending money on private investigations for a full year, that's that's a lot. You know, like, that's, that's pretty heavy stuff. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of strange. There's actually another wrinkle that might suggest that there is this bizarre secretive angle to this. There's a report... It was in this one article that had a link to a report from the local police where Kubaki's mother had been receiving different phone calls. And after the disappearance, there was one in particular that basically came in and it matched up with an earlier phone call when Stephen was still around. So not believing that her son was dead, she receives this phone call. No one on the other end. Mm-hmm. but looks into the phone records and realizes that it is from the same number that Stephen had called her from months earlier hmm. goes through these old phone bills realizes that's the same one from september of 1977 like six months before from his home college residence no it was a uh it was another number in michigan it wasn't a foreign phone number but it was 
just a random number she didn't recognize. When she got the call initially, hmm. she sort of just assumed, oh, it's just Stephen calling. You know, he's calling from a friend's house or calling from wherever. But obviously, if you get a call after he's been gone mm-hmm. from that same number, that rings a little fishy. Hmm. At the initial onset, she didn't actually realize where the call was coming from. But the six months prior, when when Stephen had called, she had talked to him on the phone for about 15 minutes. Then, obviously, yeah, gets this weird one later. So she reaches out to police, and they actually look into this as well and confirm that this strange number that called her six months after he disappeared was disconnected that same month. Hmm. Uh, They tracked down the previous owner of the phone number with the help of the Michigan Bell Company, but the records of the company on the bill had the name redacted. There was no Hmm. name on record associated with the bill payment for that phone line. It's potentially some sort of government cover-up. That is the only Suclos government cover-up angle from that quote. Yeah. And this isn't coming from Suclos. This is coming from an actual report. Right. So we can trust it. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Yeah. So this is, again, kind of like making me think maybe there was some sort of coercion involved. Because, like, maybe he's trying to make calls to make sure that his family's still okay. Because he's under coercion saying, like, you need to do this for us or your family's going to be wiped off the face of the earth or something. Weird like that. That could be a potential way to keep him quiet. Definitely. And even potentially up into modern days. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting. And then he just, like, either he didn't want to go full boring and just be gone for forever, and he just really wanted to come back to his regular life and stages this whole weird reappearance and uses the triangle as this backstory for it. Mm-hmm. But then doesn't want to talk about it. Yeah. Well, he can't talk about it. No. My final thought here is kind of just bringing it all back to Into the Portal, even though conspiracy espionage is definitely Into the Portal. (laughs) But this just ultimate idea of high strangeness, because the initial disappearance, you know, standing on the shores, you drop your bag, it's almost like you're in some sort of a trance, Mm. clicks out of his skis, drops his bag, and I just picture him slowly sauntering in almost like a zombie-like state out onto the water. And... This just reminded me of like, okay, so this is my third concept, my, my high strangeness theory that ties into this idea of energy, energy concentrations that affect time and space and whether or not this could potentially form as some sort of a wave. I'm picturing almost like a mist, a cloud, a form of electronic fog, if you will, that we've talked about in regards to plane disappearances that could suddenly envelop. Also the Edmund Fitzgerald. The Edmund Fitzgerald, exactly. So this could basically have been... Perfect circumstances, wrong place, wrong time. This this energy formation takes place. It envelops the area, and this is where Stephen blacks out. And it's basically just a ground version of electronic fog. The unlikely culmination of various different circumstances within this very strange region. Mm-hmm. That sort of speaks to me of like why he would be drawn out onto the lake. Some sort of an energy that's pulling him. He feels strange. He maybe sees some sort of a... Um, like you said, like a mirage type effect possibly like on the lake and is mm-hmm. curious by it. And then next thing you know, gone. Down the rabbit hole. Yeah, I know that's, that's an interesting theory. Very into the portal for sure. I still buy into my conspiracy angle more. <laughs> but we want to know what you think. We definitely want to know what you guys think for yeah. sure. Reach out to us and uh, yeah, hit us up and let us know. I mean, obviously we'll be posting on Instagram um, some promo about this. So please comment on that mm-hmm. and let us know what, you, uh, what your theories are. Reach out to us if you have your own Lake Michigan Triangle story. Absolutely. Mm, love to hear them. Yeah, listeners from Michigan. I know we have a handful. I know there's definitely a few of you guys out there from Michigan. So I'm sure mm-hmm. you've got your own stories associated with the... Uh, with the triangle. Yeah. I, I'm I'm buying into your conspiracy angle too. I definitely feel like there's some some evidence to lend to this idea of a vortex of yeah, some sort sure. of a mm-hmm. location that he just walked into. But yeah, I mean 
perfect place for a cover-up. Perfect place for a cover-up if you want to lean on something paranormal, that's for sure. 100%, yeah. All right, you guys. Well, let us know what you think. Send us an email into the portal mailbox at gmail.com. We would love to hear what you think. And also, more Film Friday suggestions. Yeah. Um, we had some awesome ones from... Her name is Way escaping back. me. I said I was going to give her a shout-out, so I promise on the next one I will because I forgot <laughs> to put it in here. But we've had a few really awesome suggestions lately, so keep them coming. Mm-hmm. And uh, as always, massive thank you to our producers, Adam Kellums, Kitsune, and Jarrett Cornelius. We couldn't do this without you. Thank you guys so and much. And thank you to all of our Patreon mm-hmm. supporters. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash into the portal. We've got new content coming out on there very soon as well. Mm-hmm. And also wanted to mention that we actually have a brand new sponsor of the show. Uh, it's a family business that we're associated with, but uh, most wanted luxury resale. Mm-hmm. Uh, the website is kind of like still in the in the works, but it's looking really great. So check us out. The link is down below. Most wanted luxury resale and uh, most wanted resale.com is the website. But it's, uh, yeah, it's really cool. It's like all luxury consignment and uh, ships all over North America. So Amazing. check it out. There's so many unique pieces. I love, I love shopping around in there. Yeah. Something for everybody. You Even have found me. some amazing teeny, stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Teeny mm-hmm. tiny stuff, stuff for all shapes and sizes. And just like, you can really get into some cool luxury pieces for affordable prices. So it's really neat. But yeah, as always, you guys, we really appreciate you, uh, all of you listening and all of your support for Into the Portal. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star rating and review Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. That really helps us out. And yeah, I had fun with this one. I love our, yeah. I love our disappearances. And uh, who knows, maybe Kubaki will outright one day uh, <laughs> go beyond the the the, uh, the definitive account he gave to, for that one book and maybe say have, have a few more things to say exactly. on the subject. But until that happens and until next time, on into the portal. Your gateway to the bazaar.